Hey everybody, welcome to Blockworks. This is Alf speaking, the author of the Macro Compass. It's a pleasure for me today to have as a guest Andy Constant, who's a veteran of financial markets, been Bridgewater, now is the CEO of Damped Spring Advisors. How Andy, how are you doing? I'm great, Alf. Good to see you again. So guys, this is going to be again part of the, of the series of interviews I'm going to do for Blockworks. It's an educational format where we're going to talk about macro-relevant topics, but zoom back and try to explain uh, from an educational perspective what's going on big picture make sure you subscribe to the blockers youtube channel if you want to see more of these interviews uh, directly in your um, youtube app so andy let's have a chat about qt the elephant in the room right so um first what's your take on the few headlines we got out of the minutes of qt and let's start from there yeah, I mean, that was largely what I expected. Um, I've been since mid-January thinking there was going to be a QT. My guess was July. I think it's now, um, based on the most recent comments by the um, Fed officials, starting in June. It's possible May, but we'll see. Um, but certainly by June. Um, and in the quantities that I expected um, and in the process that I expected, which was around $50 mil billion as the first level, um, I think it's actually going to come in a little less than that, maybe like 30, um, and then scaling up to 100, and they've announced that it'll be 95. And so, you know, that's in line with what my expectations were for the whole QT process. And also with the um, the um, need the the way it happens with roll down, sorry, um, runoff of existing treasury holdings being the predominant way that uh, the initial parts of QT work. Yeah, let's break it down for a second. So, what's this QT all about? How does it mechanically work, really, for people listening to us? I think that's a great topic. Yeah. So. The way I like to think about QT is that it is really the size of the balance sheet falling. So the Fed owns a bunch of bonds, mortgages and U.S. treasuries, and that's on their balance sheet. And the idea for QE was to have that quantity rise by purchases. Taper was the slowing, and it was this was confusing for most, taper was not the shrinking of the balance sheet, it was the slowing of the growth of the balance sheet. And that happened in uh, the, the last half of um, 2021. Then we, and sorry, ended, the purchases ended in March, just, just recently. Um, and then there was a pause. And at that place, at that time, the balance sheet stays at the same size. And the way that works is, Every day, or practically every day, some maturing treasury, some treasure holding of the government, of the Fed, matures. And so now they have cash. And to keep the balance sheet the same size, they need to reinvest that cash. And so we're in that phase between the end of the middle of March and when QT ultimately starts, in which the Fed is still buying treasuries every day from maturing proceeds. And so yesterday, before the 30-year auction, they bought $4.5 billion of 30-year notes. And that's, that isn't QT, that isn't QE, that is maintaining the same size of the balance sheet. And so runoff 
which is what we expect, I think everyone expects and what they've announced as their means of shrinking the size of the balance sheet is when they have a maturity of whatever they own, a bill, a bond, whatever it was, um, a mortgage, um, a prepayment of a mortgage, they get proceeds. And instead of reinvesting it, they're going to essentially burn that cash. And that will shrink the balance sheet of their treasury and mortgage holdings. And so that's what's going to happen mechanically. Very interesting what you just said. It's going to burn the balance sheet. So when the Federal Reserve decides not to reinvest maturities, it literally shrinks the asset side of the balance sheet. That's very easy to understand, right? I mean, the portfolio becomes smaller as you don't reinvest maturing bonds. The liability side of the Federal Reserve balance sheet also shrinks accordingly. And this is bank reserves that get thrown away, basically, from the system. The Federal Reserve decides to burn some of these bank reserves. Now, Andy, what happens on other economic agents during this, project, uh, during this process? What happens to their portfolio, really? Because a lot of people are interested in understanding why QT would impact um, economic agents across the board. I think others are better at the balance sheets of the various economic agents. I think you're better than I am regarding the um, the the accounting of the balance sheets and where those reserves go. So I like to step back a little bit and yeah. focus on what happens now to the to the Treasury, to the federal government, and their ability to raise money. And so the fact I like to think of the Fed, and this is where you just become apart from the plumbing briefly. I like to think of the Fed as just another investor who happens to be investing in treasury bonds. And what they've said is the proceeds that they're, they get, instead of reinvesting in treasury bonds, they're going to not. Um, and so that means that the supply of treasury bonds, which happens, which no matter who owns them, the Fed owning them or the public owning them, isn't changing because of QT. They're going to have to finance maturities, just like who, no matter who holds them. And they're going to have to raise new money to because they are continuing to spend deficit spend. But that doesn't change by who holds them. So now we have this supply, which is fairly well understood and known and can be projected based on the maturities of the federal government as a whole, not what the Fed owns, but as a whole, and the needs of the federal government for new financing. Um, and so when they go to market those bonds, which again, are, this has nothing to do with QT, the bonds themselves. When they go to market, all of a sudden, one of their buyers isn't buying. And that's the Fed. And so I think that's the most important dynamic to understand, which is now the same, nothing's changed in terms of the quantity of bonds that are being sold by the Treasury, but one of the buyers has stepped away. And so to encourage a new buyer to step in, they have to potentially, and this will depend on what they sell and to whom, potentially have to pay a concession, which means a slightly higher yield for the bonds because they have to find somebody, the Fed was buying them and now they're not. And so I think that's the process of QT. 
Um, and without a doubt, QT has um, the effect of increasing the yields of just the first order effect of increasing the yields of treasury bonds and bills and notes and everything they may sell by an amount necessary to encourage a new buyer to step in. And so that's what's been front run since they announced QT. And that's what actually will be happening during QT. And how much the market has discounted all those factors is up, you know, up for debate. So, Andy, I want to make sure that the audience understand that a bill uh, being sold to the to the private sector is not the same as a third-year bond being sold to the private sector. So that's another material difference and interconnection between the Federal Reserve QT strategy and the issuance strategy from Yellen and other uh, dynamics we can talk about, like the TGA, the Treasury General Account, or the Reserve uh, Facility, Reserve Repo, uh, Reverse Repo Facility. Those are all interconnecting points. But the most important thing I want you to explain to the audience is why different buyers of different bonds, so a buyer of a bill has to take less risks than a buyer of a third-year bond. How does that work? Right. And I think it's just like that way. The government needs its proceeds. And that's, let's call it $10 billion for what they're choosing to sell. If they sell $10 billion of a risky security like a 30-year bond, um, that, has a, um, that attracts fewer buyers and requires a higher payment, a higher concession, a higher yield than otherwise, to attract someone who is willing to take risk. Whereas for a, for a $10 billion sale of a two-year note or, or a bill, those Risk the risks of being able to get your money back um, when you go to sell that investment or when it matures is substantially lower. And so there's much more capital that's willing to buy those types of lower risk assets, which means that per dollar of funding, 30 years have a much higher impact on the overall asset market than two years or bills. Can you elaborate on the risks that a buyer of a third-year bond is taking contrary to a buyer of a bill? What risks are we talking about? Yeah, I think that's the I think that that's the thing. Um, so, and there are there are risks in buying a bond, and one of them is credit risk that you won't get paid back by the entity selling it. By and large, I think we can ignore that for the U.S. Treasury, which has an ability to print. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but. Price volatility of because interest rates fluctuate is um, real, no matter what the underlying credit is. And so when you think about a 30-year treasury, it's price volatility. So let's step back for a second. So what is risk? If I buy something today and I need money tomorrow, whether it's a 30-year bond or a two-year bond, the only way I can get that money back is by selling it in the marketplace. So I have to take risk. I can't wait till 30 years to get my maturity payment. I can't wait two years even to get my two-year bond payment. I need to sell it tomorrow to get money that I need for consumption or to pay off debt or whatever I might need cash for. Um, and so... 
a very basic way of talking about risk is just looking at the realized or implied volatility, how it fluctuates through time of every asset class. And by and large, um, because and, and risk is complicated, so I'm just using volatility at the time being. There could be things like drawdown risk, which are is a different sort of risk, but just using volatility as a risk. And it seems logical to me, and I think most investors believe that um, you deserve a higher rate of return for a higher risk. And so just on expectations, if I'm going to take, if I'm going to make a bet that has a higher risk, I want to get a higher payoff. And so at the same time, if there were payoffs in which you could get a higher return for the same risk, what would happen there is that all investors would flood into that investment because it has a higher return for the same amount of risk. Dropping, raising its price and dropping its return. And so when I think about 30 years and two years, I think about their price volatility and I think about um, the low price volatility of a two-year note, though they've been moving around a lot. They don't, they move around a lot in basis points, but they don't actually move around a lot in, in dollar price. Whereas the 30-year bond moves around a lot in dollar price. And that's what you get when you try to sell it. You don't get the yield, you get the dollar price. So... Yeah. Um, I would expect a two-year to reward you very little excess return for risk, whereas a 30-year would return would reward you a lot of excess return for risk because of the, the way they scale. And so the long and short of that is, is that 30 years have a higher return because they have a higher risk than two years, and um, their sensitivity to the same dollar amount of selling is much greater for that reason. Yeah. And so there are also different institutional buyers of two-year bonds and 30-year bonds. And as well, um, the issuance strategy of the Fed of the Treasury, they would decide to issue all of a sudden a lot more 30-year bonds while there is less marginal buyers saying the Fed buys less because of, of QT, or actually it's not marginally present there as it was in the past might have a different impact on, on different parts of the curve. Um, there is one thing you I saw you mentioning on Twitter uh, yeah. recently, which was that the reserve repo facility could be one release valve for some of this quantitative tightening. So I want you to elaborate a bit on how would that work and why do you think that's important in understanding the impact of QT on markets in 2022? Sure. You know, this is a stretch and... Um... I don't think the Treasury is likely to make a radical shift in their issuance strategy because that would be inconsistent with a lot of, of their goals and missions and possibly bad risk management. Nonetheless, on the margin, if you look at the reverse repo program, that's a Federal Reserve program that essentially pays short-term cash-like returns to people who need to find a place to park cash. They don't do it mechanically that way, but in all aspects, all other aspects, the investor who has a balance in the RRP is looking for cash-like returns, essentially T-bills. They, they would like T-bills. 
Um, they actually get a better deal by buying, doing, placing their money with the treasurer, the Fed, the uh, Fed in the RRP program than is available in the bills market, which is ironic, but speaks to the likelihood that there is a there is more demand for bills than there is supply. We know there's 1.8 trillion dollars of overnight money looking for T bills in the RRP. The funny, the interesting thing is the interest paid by the, the Federal Reserve reduces the interest income that the Treasury receives from the Federal Reserve from all of its other operations. And so the U.S. government is already short the equivalent of $1.8 trillion of T-bills in terms of the interest costs. So if they were to swap T-bills for that RRP balance at the same rate, there'd be no change in the mix of liabilities the U.S. government has, um, nor the cost of those liabilities, nor the future cost of those liabilities because they are currently floating rate. And the RRP is just a program that came about a year ago, about to the day, um, and its growth has been astronomical and is just an odd way to finance the country. There might be a lever that the, the, that the Treasury can tap to, you know, sop up some of that excess demand for T-bills. It's ironic that when it was um, set up, the RRP was actually a program to avoid that T-bills would yield negative interest rates effectively. So you would provide uh, money market funds and other large buyers of T-bills with an outlet to park their cash, which wasn't all in T-bills, pushing up the price and low the yields below, you know, in, into negative territory. And now we find this funny situation where there is like 1.6 or 1.8 trillion. I haven't checked it in a while. That is just stuck there. So that might be one release valve, but you don't expect the Treasury to, to change their issuing strategy. As you say, that would be poor risk management. The risk management side is a question because they have the liability. They have the T-bill liability. So it's not like swapping T-bills for RRP changes their interest rate exposure. Um, but, you know, we do have um, a lot of people, the Fed, suggesting rates are going a lot higher. Um, and, you know, people we, you know, spend a lot of our time talking with, like um, Joseph Wang, um, are thinking that 10-year notes might be 4%. Um, it may be attractive to lock in, you know, two and a half to 70 10-year notes if they're going to 4%. And it won't be attractive to, to roll T-bills at, which, you know, are currently at a quarter of a percent, but eventually are going to go much, much higher, assuming the Fed hikes way past the neutral rate. It may be bad risk management to issue bills versus locking in long-term yields. Um, at the same time, um, interest rates may not go up that much. We don't know. And so the Treasury is not going to place a huge bet on either part of the curve. So what have they been doing? You know, that's an instructive to me. Um, in uh, the first quarter, they uh, issued a large amount of coupons, about $700 billion of coupons. And the proceeds funded their the Treasury general account, um, 
which is essentially the Fed's, the Treasury's bank account that they can spend throughout the year. And it's now fully funded. And then um, this quarter, they reduced coupon issuance by about $100 billion, um, and also had very, very low new money needs because of the seasonality of tax receipts. So they actually only needed $66 billion for the whole quarter of new money for more deficit spending. That's partly because stimulus is ended and there's no new spending bills that need to be funded and the seasonality of taxes. So there's actually still a supply of coupons. It's heading down. Who knows? Maybe they if it continues to go down and because of a lack of need, because the budget deficit is lower and a desire to tap some of the liquidity, you could see, you know, another, I don't know, $50 billion or $100 billion or some number I'm going to watch because they're going to tell us um, of a coupon supply being reduced in Q3 at the same time as the Treasury is reducing it. Sorry, the Fed is reducing its coupon purchases by about $100 billion over the quarter. So it's just an interesting balance how the central bank issue the, um, is reducing its demand and the treasury has the ability to um, reduce its supply. And we'll see how that plays out and we can watch what they tell us in the um, days to come. But now connecting all these dots when it comes to QT and the treasury issuance, people are always interested in understanding the second round effect that QT has uh, when it comes to, uh, let's say, risk premia across asset classes, right? So there are interconnections as well with the treasury issuance as we discussed, but if you put everything together, Andy, uh, what is your base case impact that um, QT is going to have on, on risk premia across the board? Let's say equity risk premia, credit spreads, etc. Sure. As I said, when I was talking about the twos versus the, the thirties in terms of their risk adjusted return and what would happen if um, they sell a lot of 30 years and the risk adjusted return of a 30 year because of all that supply gets high. Yeah. Money will flood into that 30 year sector. Now, where is it going to come from? It's going to come from 30 year corporates. Because the 30-year corporates didn't see that supply, so they didn't, they didn't um, move. So you could sell them and buy the 30-year bond. Now, Indeed. let's take that forward and say, who are they selling the 30-year corporates to? And the answer to that is they need to find somebody to buy the corporates. So those start seeing an increase in their risk premium, and those become attractive to investors and equity investors may buy them. Who are they selling them to? And you'll see how the transmission mechanism of a of an, a net supply of U.S. treasuries flows through to the risk premium of all assets based on this arbitrage of, of wherever there is higher risk-adjusted return, money flows. And so it would flow out of all of, as it, as it is created in the 30-year, it will then flow out of all assets through time. And so now there's front running and there's there's pre-positioning and all that. And so, you know, last December I said that we're going to see a significant 100 basis point 
increase in equity risk premiums and a 50 basis point increase in 30-year note risk premiums and assets were going to suffer for the course of the, the, this year. Um, and that's by and large what's happened. So now the question is, what will the balance be and what's, what's already been priced and what the various levers, how the various levers will be pulled to make an out, uh, a guess of the outcome of risk premiums. But if there was no front running and it all got announced up front, there would be a significant impact in an oversupply of treasuries, not an oversupply, same supply, lower demand for treasuries as new buyers were found. But, you know, again, we've been living with this for, you know, four or five months now. So some of that, I think a lot of it is well known. Yeah, I think it's um, it's important, a couple of points you made. The first is, it all starts from this backbone of the financial system and, and asset pricing, which is, let's say, a risk-free real interest rate or a risk-free nominal interest rate. So let's say a 10-year bond, a 5-year, 10-year, 30-year treasury bond. And if you start um, adjusting the demand-supply imbalance in that instrument, Andy, then obviously you're going to be a final clearing price for the marginal buyer on that backbone instrument, which is different. And that reverberates across asset classes because then the marginal buyer is going to find less or more palatable to buy equities or corporates because the backbone of its its, its pricing models basically is going, to, uh, is going to change. The other thing you said, which is interesting, is what's priced in? I mean, people tend to make assumptions going in and saying, you know, it's QT, it's the reversal of QE, there is less support, there are less marginal buyers, supply demand imbalance in bonds reverberates into equities. Let's short the hell out of everything, right? But ultimately, it's all about what's priced in, right? I mean, it's your choice against what's priced in. So I know it's a $1 million question, but what do you think it's priced in from that perspective in equity risk premium and in credit spreads? Well, it's interesting. You know, it's about how big the flows are and can can we realistically expect all of the flows of markets to have happened already or not? And so I just look back to um, um, so the Fed and the Treasury did a massive stim stimulus in two months. They bought three; they issued three trillion dollars of notes, threw the proceeds into the real economy, and the Fed bought three trillion dollars of notes. And Impressive. That was in a couple of months, and so there's no way the markets could have prepared and front run that, and so equities rallied 100%, whatever it was. And so that was the flows happened first and the market was sucked up by those flows. I don't think we're in that circumstance now. I think we're in a very gradual shift of the flows. And so I don't expect a radical mis um, change in pricing from here in either direction, I'm not, I'm, I'm bullish, but you know, who the hell knows? Um, I'm not expecting a, you know, a, a, a 3,500 S&P or a 5,000 S&P based on the flows that we're going to get over the next three or four, three or four months. So anybody, anybody else who says they know, hey, it's going to be 46.25 or 42.10, you know, that's just not my game. I don't know. But what I would say is the absolute flows do matter 
and the absolute flows in the next three months are not big. It seems like we have been informed pretty accurately about what's going to happen. There is just one thing I would like to ask you when it comes to fiscal, the fiscal side of the equation. So as you said, in 2020, 2021, there was a huge amount of fiscal transfers from the government's balance sheet to the private sector balance sheet, basically increasing the net wealth of the private sector balance sheet at a very fast pace, right? And yeah, we haven't seen that happening anymore since basically March 2021. It's been a full year since effectively we saw the last fiscal transfers in America, but across the board. Do you think the pace of change of that, of the, you know, the dramatic downward shift of this fiscal transfers evaporating matters, or is it only when they turn negative? So literally the, the, the government has to go into surplus to make damage to the private sector and to earnings and to, you know, the animal spirits. Yeah, I mean, fiscal cliffs are fiscal cliffs from, you know, spending to stop to stop spending is is a thing. And you have to judge whether there's um, so my my basic outlook is there is still some pent up um, savings. Um, the RRP actually represents money that doesn't have to be invested in T-bills. It can actually be used to consume um, and then flow through the system for growth. So th- there's a balance of whether the fiscal cliff, which we definitely saw starting last September um, and continues, and I don't expect any, I think we have gridlock, so I expect no new um, spending bills to pass um, or or tax reduction bills, which um, have the same feature in terms of deficit generation um, and giving money to the private sector in one form or the other. I don't expect that. So I think that that GDP force is um, neutral to negative. I couldn't, couldn't think of it as a positive at this stage. Um, but how big it is and, you know, what's, how, what it'll do to the economy, I think I'm much more concerned about whether the Fed will um, be able to reduce demand, which, of course, is related to how much pent-up savings and ability to lever that the consumer has. But the demand side, um, the demand side, you know, GDP is partly government demand, and um, that doesn't look rosy to me. That's a fair point. I want to close the interview on a different topic that it's not QT, it's not risk premium, but it's risk management. So I admire you as a person that has taken risks and always looked at downside protections, always looked at having... Um, skewed risk-reward trades, which I think are very important. So can you give a masterclass, a five, 10 minutes masterclass of your risk management approach? How should people think about the downside? How, how should people think about taking risks with their portfolio? There is um, long-term investing risk management and there's um, um, betting, which is seeking alpha. Um different, they're obviously related topics, but there's a difference in terms of the approach I'd take. Which would you prefer? Uh, Let's talk about um, the long-term investment management. Maybe we'll save the alpha risk management for another episode. My long-term portfolio strategy is that I am passive um, for my beta. And what I mean by that is I'm looking for low-fee 
low-cost, liquid, low-transaction-cost ways of investing in a broad range of assets. And my approach happens to be, you know, I've been, I've, I've read Harry Brown's portfolio um, strategy book from the 80s, and I've worked at Bridgewater, and I've seen um, AQR's work and many other great thinkers about how to create a good portfolio. And I do believe in the idea that you need to have um, assets that do well in inflation and do and and do well when, and some other assets that do well when there is deflation and similarly growth and um, you know strong growth and weak growth and so that's what I do I have a diversified portfolio of those things at the lowest possible costs and I leave it passive and I accept that um, and I don't hedge you know there's there's a lot of talk about people using options for hedging and for the long-term passive investor um, you really have to decide whether you have alpha, meaning whether you can time exiting and entering the market or not. And I think that it's very unlikely that anyone has alpha for an extended period of time. I doubt it myself whether I ever have alpha, and I've been doing this trying to seek alpha for most of my career. Um, so the reason I mention that is Hedging, um, buying puts on your portfolio, whatever it might be, um, during times of stress is a, um, a sign to me that either you have alpha and can predict that in times of stress, you're going to be able to buy puts as the stress is happening and ideally either reinvest or sell them when the you know the crisis is passed and that's a very tough time to yeah. think to do and is also done when the the sharks that make markets in these types of things are widening their bid offer spreads see you coming know the direction you're coming a mile away and eat you for um, while you're in that market. And the reason why I think people want, I mean, so there's that alpha idea, and I think that's just very, very, very hard. Um, and then there's this idea that you have too much risk um, and need to hedge. You're facing a margin call, your stomach is in your throat, whatever it might be, whatever your version of, I have too much risk. And so the most important thing, and this is the highest level thing, is do that before the crisis. Determine your risk tolerance before the crisis so you don't have to react in the crisis. Um, and so that means prudent use of leverage, high use of diversification. And if you want to have some of your tail, your, down, your worst case drawdown risk done, do it passively. Don't do it actively. Passively means every quarter you buy a you know, a, a, a pay 2% of your potential returns to buy a 10% out of the money put so that you don't lose more than 10%. Yeah. Um, that's to be done passively. If you don't do it passively and you're market timing that, um, that means you have alpha and there's just many other ways to adjust your portfolio if you have the ability to time markets, which again, I think is very hard.
Yeah, well, it's very funny that my approach to long-term investing is very similar. And 90% of my wealth is invested looking for passive beta at a low cost that can sort of, you know, that follows a long-term base case macro environment, but can more or less withstand different cycles. And interestingly, you and I have been uh, professionals and nevertheless, we doubt ourselves whether we have any alpha and we decide to allocate a decent portion of our wealth to passive beta. It's either a coincidence or maybe it's not, who knows. But Andy, um, I think people will be inspired by this conversation, or I hope so. Where can they find more about you if they want to, you know, check you out? Thank you. Um, I'm at Damped, D-A-M-P-E-D, Spring, um, on Twitter. Follow me there or um, visit me on my website at dampedspring.com. I have um, plenty of content available um, for anybody who's interested in any of these topics. I can only endorse Andy as a seasoned professional. Go and check him out. Uh, thanks, Andy, for being here. And if you want to listen to more of these interviews and the educational series that I'm going to be doing, make sure you subscribe to the BlockWorks YouTube channel. Talk to you guys. See you next time. Ciao, Andy. See ya.